Hello and welcome to the DC Wash Up. It is the State of the Union edition. I am producer Roscoe Waylam, and joining me in the studio today is North America Bureau Chief Zoe Damuel. Hello. <laughs> and North America correspondent, Comma Duffy. Hello. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we're having a little bit of fun there due to a spelling error on the official tickets for the State of the Union Address, Donald Trump's first State of the Union Address. Um, how fitting do you guys think that it was that we had a spelling error for his very first State of the Union Address? Perfect. <laughs> yeah, it was wonderful. It was wonderful. Uh, so today we're going to recap the State of the Union. Um, we're going to call it the Union now. Uh, we're also going to go over this very confusing, complicated memo regarding the Russia investigation that you may have heard about this week. Hopefully, by the time this podcast goes to air, the memo hasn't been released, but even still, hopefully it will provide some good background to what the hell it is. And finally, Connor's going to talk about a very interesting interview that he did earlier this week. That's a little dangled carrot for those that can hang around. So, firstly, the State of the Union, Zoe... This is one of those events that Washington gets very excited for every year... But do we learn anything from the president making an address like this, particularly a president like Donald Trump? I didn't think it was all that exciting. It's a set piece. It's a written speech. He read it from an auto cue. We know that several people helped him write it. It's not Donald Trump as we know him, really. And also, he's so volatile in the language that he uses in other forums that I think everyone has learnt after a year of Donald Trump's presidency that what he says one minute can be quite different to what he says the next, and particularly before breakfast at the time of day <laughs> when I haven't had my coffee. Most painful. <laughs> but relying on what he says in a set speech like that that's been contributed to by many and also in a forum where he wants to and has to appear presidential in front of the joint houses of Congress is very different to the sort of dashed-off tweets that tend to get the entire world into a tiz. Um, so the other point I would make about it is that the White House previewed the speech saying that it was to be unifying and bipartisan, and I think that's something that's plainly very difficult for any president <laughs> in this environment, but particularly Donald Trump, who's one of the most divisive presidents in modern history. And it wasn't a particularly unifying speech. Some of the language talked about unity, uh, but the, he then went on to outline particular policy positions which will have the Democrats running a mile from making any sort of deal with him, particularly on immigration, for example. And it was also supposed to be upbeat, and I didn't find it upbeat at all, actually. I thought he was pretty low energy. Um, <laughs> An insult, turning his slow. own insult back on him. <laughs> low energy Jeb. <laughs> low energy Don. <laughs> Connor, what, do you, what did you think? Yeah, I, I agree with Zoe there. I think... Um, the White House hype about it being a unifying moment, a chance to reach out to the other side and offer them things and bring people together it was kind of like the trailer when you like for a really bad movie, but sometimes the trailer can look really good because it's so short. <laughs> um, so um, that had been, you know, hyped for days that it was almost like it was going to be this great peace accord of two sides yeah. reaching across a ravine and <laughs> meeting hands. But then in the end, it was just basically. Um, more of the same from the president. I and mean, you could see that when he talked about immigration, which was the most contentious issue. He made his offer of um, some protection for dreamers, but then listed three 
other demands to counterweigh that and spent um, the great majority of his speech talking about things like MS-13 when he was talking about immigration and um, made that kind of rather barbed comment that Americans are dreamers too. Um, Mm -hmm. So I don't... And you could kind of... Probably for me the best part was the crowd reactions of the cuts camera when you would see the reaction from both sides of um, the chamber and it was so divided. Um, Republicans must have felt a bit giddy from all those standing ovations and um, (laughs) just constant up and down. And the Democrats, you know, at times it was just completely ashen, stony-faced silence. Um, So if that really was the goal, I think it, it failed on that front. And as Zoe said, I think this is where... Donald Trump is at his least compelling when he's giving these speeches that are written by someone else rather than um, riffing um, or, you know, speaking from the heart, I suppose. It was a pretty long speech as well, Zoe, especially by Donald Trump's accounts. It was so long. (laughs) It was so long. It was an hour 20. And the only person in the last 50 years who's given longer ones is Bill Clinton twice. Um, I won't say anything about that, but yeah, I mean, he he was interrupted repeatedly by his own and others' applause, uh, <laughs> yes. so that definitely elongated the the situation. But yeah, I mean, Connor's right. the The reaction of the crowd was what made it most interesting, and I think that you know, in spite of the talk about it being a, a unifying exercise, what it actually did was um, again pose a sort of us and them situation, particularly around immigration. Well, we're dreamers too. You're not the only dreamers kind of thing. Um, And well, yeah, we'll allow a couple of million dreamers a path to citizenship, but only if all of their chain migrating families can't come, which has become very much a pejorative term. Um, You know, originally it was a sort of academic term for family members who might join people here and in other countries, uh, but that's very much become an insulting term in reference to reunification of families. This is exactly the kind of language that will put particularly the more left-wing Democrats offside and make them not want to make a deal on immigration with Donald Trump. And then, yes, to have families of murder victims who'd been killed by members of international gangs weeping in the audience, again, raising that law and order um, sort of spectre within the chamber, again, creates this sort of us and them uh, mentality. And you've got to remember that it was only, what, two weeks ago that the government was shut down over this issue of the Dreamers. The short-term spending bill has to be voted through again in a week if the look on those Democrats' faces is anything to go by, that won't be easy. Mm. And probably on another topic that we should get into now, because it might take a while to unpack, is this hyper-partisanship over this Nunes Pfizer warrant memo that's been kicking around Congress for probably a week now, and we've been waiting for its release. Zoe, do you want to have a crack at explaining what this actually I think we might even is. need to explain Nunes, Pfizer. Okay. <laughs> a bit of word association first. Yeah. Okay. Um, take, take us back to somewhere in the beginning and we can just kind of jump around and fill in bits as we work it out. Right. Well, let's start with the memo itself uh, because that is the current issue. Uh, essentially, Republicans on the House Intelligence Committee have put together a memo which uh, details 
uh, their view of the way that the FBI and Justice, Justice Department extended a surveillance warrant on a member of Donald Trump's campaign staff, that being Carter Page. This is a person who was mentioned in that infamous Steele dossier that was released about 12 months ago now um, in relation to meetings that he had had with the Russians. The Republican memo, which was largely the baby of Devin Nunes, who's the chairman of that House committee, uh, alleges that the Steele dossier was unverified, uh, much as Steele, who wrote it, uh, is a former member of British intelligence, that it was not a document put together by British intelligence and it had no, never been verified by them, uh, and therefore it should not have been relied on in a court to get that surveillance extended, that being a FISA warrant, um, if we want to use acronyms. And um, so the controversy around the releasing of the memo is that if this is taken as read by the population, that will undermine the credibility of the Russia investigation overall because it goes to the fact that the FBI was using unverified sort of dodgy information um, to get its surveillance warrants, which in effect meant that it was surveilling not only Carter Page, but other members of the Trump campaign who were meeting with him. And the person who supposedly signed off on the FBI getting that warrant in the court using the Steele dossier was Rod Rosenstein, who is the Deputy Attorney General, who is overseeing the Mueller investigation. So it therefore undermines his credibility, may give a window to Donald Trump giving him the sack, replacing him with a proxy who is weaker, who could then get rid of Bob Mueller, and then all hell breaks loose. Um, so that's kind of... I feel like you should do Trump <laughs> up to that, straight into the microphone. That is very <laughs> impressive. I was just trying to write down the key words because I, I, we keep talking about the fact it should be like a, a murder movie with the you know homicide detectives with the red tape and rope between the different characters and faces. It's straight out of some sort of spy thriller, but it's actually real-life situation. There's so many unusual characters in this, and it is so very complicated. And trying to work out the effects of or the intentions behind different actors in this and why it matters, I think, is also the hard part, which I think is what you're getting to in Chapter 2 of this. Well, Devin Nunes, if we're going back to who Nunes is, um, the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee was a member of Donald Trump's transition team and was forced to recuse himself from the House Committee's investigation on this matter after he revealed to the press around this time last year, I think it was, yeah. that intelligence officers had incidentally captured members of Donald Trump's campaign during their intelligence gathering. So while they were surveilling other people, they caught particular members of the Trump team in the net. He revealed that information to the media without getting permission to do so from the committee. Uh, they weren't very happy about that, so he had to recuse himself. So he was already a, a kind of a controversial figure, mm. um, very much a pro-Trump activist and very much a, an anti-FBI personality as well. Um, and you, we've got a sort of the context of this, obviously, is the whole administration's anti-FBI behaviour, the sacking of James Comey, the president's constant criticism of the FBI, the fact that he hates the Mueller investigation. We know he'd love, love it to go away. Um, the fact that Andrew McCabe, the 
Deputy FBI Director decided to take leave effectively in order to bring forward his retirement after apparently pressure um, to the head of the FBI to get rid of him from Jeff Sessions, the Attorney General. All of these things are playing into this massive, bizarre spiderweb, uh, which at, at some point will explode. And it's kind of exposed this um, tension on Capitol Hill as well because the memo which they decided to release publicly, which we're currently waiting for, was a vote on party lines. Democrats had asked that a second memo be released that they'd put together. So the Nunes memo is a four-pager. They've got a ten-pager that they want to release to kind of clarify some of the things they may disagree with in the Nunes memo. And Republicans said, no, we're not going to do that either. We might consider it in a week's time or something like that once we've seen it. And then additionally, Zoe, we've seen the FBI and the Justice Department say, please don't release the memo. Do you think the president cares that they are saying to him, don't release the memo? Uh, Probably not, other than the fact that it does very much pit the White House against the Justice Department and the FBI, which doesn't look good. And also Christopher Wray, who is the head of the FBI, who was appointed to replace James Comey, it's, you know, scuttlebutted around, may even consider resigning over this. That, much as Donald Trump would like to get rid of the Mueller probe, won't be good for him because it just goes to the whole... Um, ethical question around why the White House is making such a huge effort to undermine its own intelligence service. In public, the White House says repeatedly that they're helping the Mueller investigation, they're doing whatever is required of them, but behind the scenes they are obviously got this ongoing campaign to undermine the investigation in one way or another. Politico have described it as a slow-motion version of the Saturday Night Massacre. Zoe, what are the parallels between it in that sense? Well, I mean, the Saturday Night Massacre, you you can argue that you're sort of getting rid of a lot of people quickly in order to make something go away in terms of Watergate. Mm-hmm. This is like slow motion, um, sort of like the... the drip, drip. Yeah, the, the avalanche um, very slowly coming down the mountain and exposing the rock. Um, it's... And in some ways, it's you could kind of equate it to the the whole frog in a pot analogy. It's a little little bit easier to do something gradually because people don't notice the the sort of holistic nature of what's going on. But if you're seeing individuals gradually removed and replaced with members of people, well, people that Donald Trump views as part of his team or sympathisers um, to to his cause, then Plainly, it erodes the independence or, um, and the, the sort of separation of powers between the intelligence service, the Justice Department and the White House. And this really goes to the core of the whole operation of American democracy. Can you also, because you're doing such a stellar job of explaining this as well, explain to our listeners how the two romantically involved FBI agents fit into this as well? I mean, obviously, we've got this effort to undermine Mueller himself. There was the talk about his conflicts of interest with Trump and the golf course and things like that. There's also this effort to undermine the just entire Justice Department and the way in which they're conducting things by looking at the members of the FBI and how they may have anti-Trump leanings or pro-Clinton leanings for that matter. Yeah, this this is like, this is really 
part of the novel that, that comes <laughs> back at the end and you somehow get the kicker that the, these two FBI staff who were having a, an affair um, were somehow pulling the strings of the whole thing. This is this is in my fiction version, not in reality. <laughs> but, yeah, so Peter Strock and Lisa Page. Strock is an FBI agent. Page is an FBI lawyer. Uh, were having a, an extramarital affair, uh, exchanged some 50,000 text messages. Um, many of those apparently, and we, we have seen some of them, um, are anti the president and pro Hillary Clinton. Um, so this has been grabbed by critics of the Russia investigation and the FBI uh, to say that this is an illustration of the fact that the Russia investigation is a witch hunt on Donald Trump because Peter Strzok uh, was working on the Russia investigation. Um, that said, he also worked on the Hillary Clinton email investigation uh, and therefore it was also latched on to um, by those critics to say well he was pro Hillary Clinton that he changed particular wording in the original findings to make it uh, less serious for her and things like that uh, but it's subsequently been revealed that he actually helped James Comey draft the letter to reopen the Hillary Clinton email investigation just a few days before the election, which was at least a factor, if not the factor, and I don't think it was the factor, but a factor uh, in the way that the vote fell. So that kind of puts paid to the argument that uh, he and others within the FBI were deliberately undermining Donald Trump as part of the Russia investigation when, you know, plainly they threw Hillary Clinton under a bus uh, as well. Um, but the other aspect that's worth mentioning, just sort of going to the all of all of the layers in this, is that at least one of the text messages uh, that was exchanged between these two FBI staff mentions Andy, uh, and that person is believed to be Andrew McCabe, the deputy director of the FBI, who was under pressure to go, who has subsequently taken early retirement in inverted commas. That was really good. That was yeah. really well done, Connor. What do you think then after hearing all that? Release the memo? Yes, I think definitely <laughs> release the memo. I want to see it. Hashtag I mean, release been, the yeah, memo. Like, we've been reading on it, about it and standing by to report on it all week and mm. um, so much exhausting. fuss over a four-page yeah. document we haven't seen. Um, but I mean, I think it, it also goes to just the, the hyper-partisanship at the moment that that's been in itself a huge fight about whether or not to release the memo. I think there's probably valid arguments around protecting FBI staff and methods, but I think in terms of transparency, um, release it. Uh, uh, part of the FBI reason for not wanting it released is that it's embarrassing, and I think that um, an organisation that uh, America gives extraordinary powers to, um, that shouldn't be enough of a reason to keep it secret. But at, by the same token, if you're going to release that memo, you should release the Democrat memo at all as well. So. Release all the memos. Release all of the memos. Yeah. <laughs> all right, WikiLeaks. <laughs> there's there's one last little bit of it, which, speaking of WikiLeaks, I think is a kicker, is that the fact that apparently part of the hashtag release the memo campaign is in part being run by a bunch of Russian bots. Like, <laughs> really? <It's> so awesome. <laughs> <It's> yeah. <laughs> Perhaps that's the name of the novel, yeah. The Russian Bot. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I think that's enough, Russia. If you manage to stick with us through that 
10 minutes on Russia. Zoe did a great wow. job of that. I was really yeah. impressed. Um, we are going to reward you with a really interesting, speaking of wacky things that go on, experience that Connor Duffy had this week. Connor managed to uh, secure an interview with one of the major characters of what we would call season one, season two, two of the Trump lifetimes thing. Anthony Scaramucci, Connor, please explain to us how this came to be and what that was like. Thanks, Roscoe. Well, um, it was lots of um, harassment, basically, uh, from my end, um, <laughs> pestering him to do an interview, um, which I didn't think he would ever agree to, but he finally did. Um, and also, I, I didn't think that he would be, if he did do it, particularly generous or forthcoming, but um, I couldn't have been more wrong. It was a very ebullient mooch that we met um, <laughs> up in his uh, hedge fund, Skybridge Capital in New York, where he now works. Um, it was, yeah, really, like actually probably one of the funnest days I've had in journalism, um, <laughs> mainly just because he was so energetic and up for it. Um, often when people do interviews, cameramen are looking at different shots to, of how to frame things and wanting to sort of frame things in a different way, but perhaps worried about how the talent um, might feel about it. And there's this giant Superman poster, which was just out of frame, which our cameraman wanted to move, but thought, oh, no, he probably won't like it. And um, we arrived an hour and a half early to set up, and as soon as the mooch arrived, he saw that the Superman um, poster wasn't in frame and moved it so that it was. Um, <laughs> and that kind of sent the tone from there. There was lots of banter about convicts um, <laughs> and our cameraman looking like a pirate. And then, um, Which he does. He does. <laughs> Fact. He, he was a little put out about that too. Just for the record. He's like, pirate, what? <laughs> Maybe should t- tweet a photo <laughs> of Adrian. Let us know what you think. Does he look like a pirate? Yeah. <laughs> Cover photo on this week's podcast. Yeah, great. Um, but yeah, and then um, once we we got into it, we got a really fascinating insight. I think from him into all the upheavals that happened um, in in the White House with a, a level of honesty um, that I really didn't think would happen going into it. Um, so um, I'm going to play a little clip. Um, and this is Anthony Scaramucci talking about his ousting of Wrights Priebus and Sean Spicer from the White House. And uh, he was quite proud of that, although not of the language he used to do it in that infamous interview with Ryan Lizzo, where he used some pretty gross terms for um, uh, for many of his colleagues in the, the White House. But um, here's what he had to say about all of that. Am I proud? Uh, you know, listen, I'm not proud of that conversation. I, again, I apologize to Governor Huckabee, Sarah, uh, my mom. I'm not proud of the conversation. Um, I learned a lot about that conversation about who you can trust and who you can't trust. But I am proud about the fact that I handled the mission that was given to me directly. Uh, had I handled it more like a political operative, I probably would have lasted longer, but I wouldn't have lasted that much longer. I told the uh, late-night comedian Steve Colbert that I, I thought I was going to make it longer than a carton of milk in your refrigerator, but I didn't think I was going to last super long because, let's face it, you're declared as a hatchet man in a place like Washington. The knives are going to come out, and people are going to go after you. And so, you know, I, I, uh, I got a very amazing education over the last year. And he seems to have moved on, Connor. He seems in a good spirits now, and he's actually returned to the limelight in a sense recently, defending Donald Trump in regards to the Michael Wolff Fire and Fury book. That's right. He told me that after the book came out that the president reached out to him, called him, and said that he wanted him to go back 
out onto the airwaves and advocate for him and do uh, interviews um, defending him. He had some pretty strong words in the interview about Steve Bannon and about Michael Wolfe and even um, gave us the... L on the forehead sign during the interviews. If you want to check that out, that's on the 7.30 website. Um, we won't go back into that for here. Um, but the other thing I thought was interesting out of it was I asked him, given that he blasted those people out and he felt that a lot of the leakers who were undermining um, the administration from within were gone, would we expect a more streamlined uh, approach this year? And he said that n no, that um, the president as an entrepreneur thrives on what he called controlled chaos. Um, so it's kind of, yeah, bad news if you were hoping for a, a less chaotic news cycle this year. <laughs> um, good news if you like what's been happening so far. Um, so this is Anthony Scaramucci's prediction for what we can expect for 2018 in the White House. The President has been telling people in recent weeks that he feels the Oval Office is back on track after a difficult year. Given the situation you've described and what everyone knows about what went on there, do you think 2018 is going to be different and a bit more streamlined? I predict that the White House will always have an element of surprise and always have an element of disruption. And that's what made the president the president. And that's what made his company so great or his television show so great. So, so people are saying, okay, yeah, yeah, last year was a scratch. Next year he's going to be like streamlined and totally functional. By their definition, they're going to be wrong. Okay, but he's going to be unbelievably productive. He's going to be unbelievably popular by the end of the you know, by the midterm elections, it's my prediction, because things, people vote with their wallets, man. You know, pe things are going well in the country. They look around and say, well, okay, these people are talking nonsense about my president, but he's actually doing a good job. I'm going to vote for him again. You know, I think, well, I, I wondered whether your mum would be happy or sad that you admitted using really filthy language akin to the mooch because I, I thought it showed great honesty on your part to confess on camera to using that kind of language. And I thought, hmm, I wonder if Connor's mum is going to think, good, my boy is honest or you naughty boy. Yeah, we, we might have to have a discussion about that on the weekend. And now I just got a brief message on Facebook saying she really liked the story. Um, perhaps there's more to come out on then. The mooch did have to apologise, so maybe I'll have to do the same. <laughs> Certainly one of the most exciting, crazy moments of 2017. Um, you know, I wouldn't rule out a comeback for him yet, as evidenced by your story, Connor. We might see the mooch again, um, and you will see us all again, or hear from us next week on this podcast. We're going to have fallout from the memo. Are we? Is it going to blow everything up? Are we going to have a Saturday Night Massacre? We're very close to Saturday. Not quite yet. Not quite yet. Yeah, no, I say no. I think it's going to be a fizzer, but it should be released. I think it's going to be a fizzer. Mm. Yep. Okay, well, we will be here to report on whatever happens. As always, thanks for listening.